Welcome to the inaugural episode of Many Happy Returns. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. We aim to make you a better investor. Remember to subscribe to get every new episode as soon as it's released. This week, we're talking all things inflation. How bad is it? Is it going to last? And how might it affect our investment choices? For people of my generation, we've never really lived through a period of high inflation. So this feels like something new and potentially a little scary. And then later in the show, I'll ask whether Warren Buffett's success is down to skill or luck. And that's a segment we call Dumb Question of the Week for a reason. Okay, so let's get into it. In the US, inflation is running at 7%. That's the highest since 1982. And in the UK and Eurozone, it's running at 5%. So it's a global phenomenon. I think it's fair to say it's all running pretty hot. Is that right, Roman? Yeah, I mean, 7% is pretty shocking. Usually, if it gets to 7%, really bad things are happening. So maybe it's worthwhile actually saying what what inflation is just to start, because I think some people get confused by this. So just to kind of outline how it's measured, usually there's a basket, a consumption basket, which the statistical agency produces. Now, that's the typical consumption basket for the average consumer. And what they look at is how much that's changed over the last year or over the last month. And they have different weightings for different components, and we'll talk about that later. But inflation is the year-on-year increase in prices. That's the thing to have in your mind. So what we're seeing is a high year-on-year change. But I imagine at the start of the pandemic, inflation was extremely low because everything got locked down. So are we seeing a kind of artificially high inflation right now? Yeah, that's right. So economists call this a base effect, which is prices crash when there's low demand. So for example, if we look at fuel prices just going into the pandemic lockdown periods, the price of fuel fell very sharply. So what we're comparing now is a very low base from a year ago. I mean, didn't oil go negative somehow in the US? Yeah, that's right. For the futures market, it was really quite odd. And in fact, there's an ongoing investigation into some potential price manipulation. That would be an interesting podcast in itself. But the price of futures for the oil market did actually go negative for a very short period of time. So you had to pay to hold oil. Yes, that's right. That's one of the kind of technicalities of how the futures market works. So you say part of what we're seeing now is those base effects as we're kind of the economy's ramping back up again and you're sort of comparing against when it was very low. But in that consumption basket you talked about, what particular elements are starting to you know, drive that inflation? Well, everyone's saying that there are two components which are really driving it higher. One of them is due to the base effects, and that's the gasoline and energy prices, because we're comparing very low prices a year ago. And the other component is due to bottlenecks in supply. So if you are producing a certain number of goods, sprockets, say, and the <laughs> demand... For- Everyone uses sprockets. I don't know why. So if there's a huge demand for those sprockets and a limited supply, then the price goes up. It's just very basic supply and demand. Goddamn sprocket-driven inflation. (laughs) I've heard about microchips being in short supply. But the sprockets in this case, of course, are microchips, as you say. So a limited supply huge demand. And of course, many cars now are just computers on wheels. So the price of used cars actually went up because the supply of new cars was limited by the number of chips that could be put into those cars. Okay, so that makes sense. So is it the case that if I avoid 
fuel and used cars and avoid buying those things, my inflation is actually not that high. Or is it? Is it now broadening out into uh, accommodation and um, food and all these other components that we more typically think about when we think about inflation? Well, of course, there's a certain knock-on effect. So, for example, if gasoline prices are higher and diesel fuel prices are higher, then the cost of transporting food becomes higher. So you can have these kind of second-order effects that we are starting to see now. So, for example, if you look at the price of meat in the United States, that's also starting to increase. So the core part of inflation, which is what the Fed actually looks at, which strips out energy and food, which tend to be very volatile, that core CPI is also starting to increase now. And that's above 5%. So it seems kind of counterintuitive, right? Because I think when people think about inflation, or I mean, I do, I think, how much does it cost to fill up a car? And how much does it cost to do my grocery shopping? And so you're saying the economists don't actually look at those two things. It's all the other stuff. Well, the reason why they do that is because if you have to control inflation, it's kind of like steering a super tanker. So imagine you're the captain of a super tanker. In order to turn the ship around, it takes, you know, potentially a very long time. So if you see inflation starting to increase, then you have to act very carefully. You don't want to have a single blip in inflation making you turn the tanker around and raise interest rates. So they have to kind of look through the volatile components and just focus on the longer term stuff. And it's funny because if I make a video about inflation, I get lots of people in the comments saying, oh, you're just ignoring all the important components. But in fact, the Fed does that for a very good reason. You mentioned super tankers. The other thing I've seen reported a lot is that shipping costs have gone through the roof. So I think seven times greater than it was a couple of years ago before the pandemic. I think it's driven by high goods demand in the US. That's right. And of course, many of these ships were not able to just move the stuff quickly enough. And we've seen huge backlogs at the ports where lots of things are being delivered, but there aren't enough lorries or trucks, as they call them in the United States, to actually ship the goods away from the port. So that's been one of the bottlenecks that we've discovered. And that presumably has knock-on effects for all range of imported goods. Of course, because we, do, we rely so heavily in this kind of global economy on these supply chains. And we've really discovered all the weak points of these supply chains. Another thing to look at is the Baltic Dry Index. And that's actually the cost of shipping for certain types of goods. They tend to be kind of more industrial goods. And that spiked massively because it costs a lot more to ship those goods during this kind of bottleneck period. But that's actually come down quite a bit now. So, you know, some of the things have, have kind of eased, but it's still the case that we see lots of these supply bottlenecks. And do you think they will get resolved? Because I remember sort of relatively early in the pandemic, we had a massive spike in lumber prices, um, which then sort of eased relatively quickly after that. Is that a kind of harbinger of things to come? Are we going to see these things resolve as the world gets over coronavirus? Well, I think it's difficult to predict these things because human behaviour is inherently odd <laughs> and unpredictable. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but when we get these kind of very huge shocks to the system, we see these kind of unprecedented effects. Who would have predicted that house prices would have gone up so much after the pandemic or that equity prices would have gone up so much? I mean, these are very strange pieces of behaviour, which we've only just kind of learnt about now. So I think the house price surge that we've seen kind of makes sense in retrospect because people are more focused on their home living space. They've realised, oh, it's quite nice to have a garden because 
that were locked in with no garden. I mean, tell me about it. One bed flat in central London <laughs> for two years with a baby. <laughs> yeah, that does sound like it would make you go stir crazy. So you can see why, in retrospect, people are kind of looking for more kind of suburban housing and moving out to the country and relying more on things like Zoom. So this has kind of catalyzed a new kind of behavior for many people. But I think some of the changes will be short term. And that's why I think the CPI will come down, because this kind of behavior won't persist forever. And obviously, if you're a company making chips, then you'll increase supply. We've already seen the chip manufacturers start to do that. Is there an elephant in the room here? So we're talking a lot about the supply issues and the effect of the pandemic. But we've also seen a huge amount of monetary and fiscal policy stimulus. And a lot of people would say that's inevitably going to lead to inflation and you printed so much money. Or is that a bit of a misunderstanding? (laughs) That's right. I mean, you know, I get that's another one of the surges in comments I get after a video about inflation, which is, you know, of course, inflation's gone up because there's been a huge increase in the supply of money. But in fact, if you actually look at the statistics about money supply, and inflation, the relationship between the two is actually very weak. There's not a huge increase in inflation necessarily once money supply increases. So if you look back to 2008, 2009, there was a big increase in money supply, but inflation pretty much went nowhere. And in fact, it was lagging 2% for a long period of time. But I guess the difference we have seen to the 2008 response is fiscal policy has stepped up, right? So governments are spending money. So I read that around 11 trillion US dollars in fiscal stimulus has been implemented worldwide. So that is fiscal policy turned up to 11, no pun intended. (laughs) Oh, very good. That's the only joke I prepared for this, so we're in trouble now. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's true. I think fiscal policy will play a role because that money kind of washes around in the system and it does push up prices. Perhaps part of the equity price surge that we saw was due to that. People were saying, you know, I got my stimmy check. I went and bought options on Tesla, you know, so, so I think I think there has been an effect on certainly on asset prices. I read that before the pandemic, the deposits at commercial banks in America was around $13.5 trillion, and that's now more like $18 trillion. So that's a huge increase in savings that people have ready to spend or invest. That's right. If you look at the savings rate, it just surged in almost every developed country, certainly in the US, certainly in the UK. Savings rates went to incredibly high levels, but now we've seen those normalize as well. So I think, you know, eventually those savings are going to be used up and we'll go back to a kind of normal rate of inflation because pandemics end eventually. So you say eventually, I guess that's the question, isn't it? Is how long is eventually? The Fed kept using the word transitory to describe it, which to me was a bit of a nebulous term because it, everything's transitory, right? When, but when is it going to go back to normal? <laughs> they had so much pushback about transitory. Eventually, they had to stop using it because they said it was detracting from their message. My sense was they said they're going to stop using it, but they still believe it. <laughs> well, I think many people still believe it. You know, I wouldn't discount the possibility that prices are going to come down. I think they will. Romin is team transitory through and through. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, will prices surge and will this behaviour persist forever? I don't think so. Because, you know, surge in demand can't last forever, particularly if it's something that comes after a shock. So I think, for example, right, so if you look at 
trend growth in inflation over a long period of time and just say, look, if today every single price component of the consumption basket went back to that long-term trend, how long would it take inflation to come back down to kind of normal levels? So I did some sums and I made a video about it, but it would take over seven months for inflation to come down to 4%. Seven months, you know, so we're talking about at the end of 2022, before inflation comes down to 4%, which is still double the Fed's 2% target. So I think it, this kind of shock takes a while to work through this year-on-year -year comparison window. So that's really interesting. So no matter what happens, really, we're going to see elevated inflation for, well, the next year, even if things do go back to normal. Yeah, that's right. So transitory, I think, simply means that this too shall pass. And what if it's what if we're wrong, right? What if it's not transitory and it stays higher? What could cause that? Well, if you get something like a wage price spiral, this is the kind of thing that makes Jerome Powell wake up in a cold sweat because <laughs> the idea is that if prices go up, eventually what could happen is that workers could say, well, the price of my everyday expenses has gone up by 7%, 10%. I insist, this is what they'd say to their employer, I insist that you'd pay me more as a result. I'm going to try it. I'm going to try that. <laughs> <laughs> so wages would chase prices at that point, and then prices would chase wages, and you get this kind of price-wage spiral is what they call it. There's something about that I don't quite understand. So surely workers are trying to demand their highest possible wages all the time anyway. So what's different unless there's sort of a union power which can drive that inflation in salaries where's it going to come from exactly that's a very good point michael <laughs> you don't need to say it sarcastically <laughs> <laughs> oh, but i mean I, th I think the reason why people focus on something called a tight labor market is that if you have very few people who are out of work then it's really tough to find a new person to replace an existing person. So if you're in that kind of situation, if you can't be fired effectively, then you've got a much stronger negotiating position. So that's why people are kind of focused on the level of unemployment, which has come down very quickly in the US. So that's one of the reasons why the fiscal stimulus was great, because if you look back to 2008 or 2009, it took a very long time for the labour market to recover. This time has been much quicker to recover. Mm. I mean, there's all this talk of the great resignation. Yeah, if you look at the quit rate in the United States, it's definitely surged. Now, if people are more confident about finding a new job, they're more likely to quit their existing job. So that's why the quit rate's kind of important as a signifier of a tight labour market. But of course, as you say, the other thing is having unions which can demand big increases in wages for a large proportion of the workforce. And in the US, essentially over the last two, three, four decades, they've kind of destroyed unionization of labor. So that's why in the US, we haven't seen a price wage spiral for some time. So what you're saying is workers of the world unite. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're in America where you can't, yeah. But the other thing is if companies can't pass on the increase in prices to their customers, they have to take a margin hit. So if you look at historical price-to-earnings multiples, that's how much stocks are kind of expensive, if you like. When inflation's 7%, usually margins are much tighter and companies do much worse and equities de-rate. So another consequence of having high inflation for a long period of time would be a big derating 
of equity. That means equity price falls. So at the moment, I think equity markets are just looking through this kind of transitory peak in inflation. But if we did see kind of a price wage spiral, then it would be a very different story. We'd see a big fall in equity markets, I think. So that's the question to look out for then over the coming year. Yeah, that's the thing to watch. And that's why people are kind of focused on the tightness of the labour market and how quickly wages are increasing. And you don't have to read about inflation for long online for borderline conspiracy theories to come up about how it's massively underreported and inflation is way higher than what the official numbers say. Is there anything in that? There's actually another version of inflation which is published in the US, which is based on the consumption basket from before 1980. So this is called shadow stats. The consumption basket has changed so much over the years that you know, it's crazy to use an old methodology for measuring price increases today. And I'll just give you some examples of that. If you look back to the 1960s, that's when the refrigerator was added to the consumption basket, because before that we didn't have it. Uh, and then we had things like the cassette recorder in 1976, the Continental Quilt in 1980. <laughs> what the hell is that? That we now call a duvet, of course. Microwave what ovens. did they use before duvets? Well, it was all kind of like you had blankets on the bed. Like a dog. Like a kind of army barracks, you know. We're living in the future, duvet land. And of course, some things drop out, right? So things like uh, video recorders dropped out of the UK consumption basket in 2007. And then we've had things added like microwave rice, coffee pods, computer game downloads. All of these things were kind of unthinkable 50 years ago. Do you think um, a pension craft subscription will ever get added to the basket? Of course, Michael. Of course it will, yeah. <laughs> I think the other point people make is around a kind of, I, think, I can't remember what they call it. Is it something like hedonic adaptation or something like that? Yeah, that's right. Because if you add something new, you have to kind of smooth over the price changes. So for example, if you have flat screen TVs, you have to work out what it would have been if you'd have had it the previous year before it was a kind of included in the basket. So you do a kind of regression model to work out the price, and then you work out what it would have been in the previous period. So kind of smoothing over the cracks as you add things is not easy. But I think these statistical agencies like the ONS in the UK, the Bureau for Labour Statistics in the US, I think they do a great job. They're kind of, everyone should hug a statistician, I think. They do a great job. <laughs> I mean, just on an instinctive level, they must do, right? Because I feel like standard of living is no worse than it was in the past. So, you know, that's got to be a reflection of inflation being under control in the long term. I think for normal people, the thing you have to look at is the real wage increase. So how much of your wages increased relative to inflation? That's the really important thing. That's the kind of real standard of living measure. That's what makes us feel wealthy. And if you look in the UK, really, it hasn't increased for a decade. In the US, it was just starting to surge, actually increased pretty well before the pandemic. But of course, now inflation's hit 7%. It's pushed wage growth negative bad timing. Yeah. And I think that's what causes a political problem for people who are in power. If people see their quality of life start to get worse, inflation becomes a big political issue. I think that we're seeing that now, aren't we, in the US. So Biden last summer was talking about how, you know, it's transitory and, you know, everything will be fine in six months time. But now you're really seeing him sort of sympathising with people about the cost of living increases. And the Fed is sort of, like you say, they've dropped the transitory narrative. I think the Fed is scheduling three rate hikes for this year. 
Yeah, that's right. So that's kind of like the central case now, which is that we'll see three rate hikes in 2022 because the Fed is starting to see some signs that there are non-transitory components in inflation. I think there's, they're very clear in that they're not looking at models anymore. They just look at inflation as it's measured. Because I, I think they realise that the models just weren't very good at forecasting. But presumably the supply bottlenecks wouldn't be solved by interest rates rises. Or oil prices. So this is why they focus on things called endogenous and exogenous shocks. Exogenous just means it's outside the system. So like you say, you can't reduce the price of chips by raising interest rates. Whereas things like consumption, you can affect. That's what I've always kind of um, wondered, right? So if people ask me, you know, how does interest rate rise tame inflation, I sort of just say, oh, money gets more expensive and then I run away because <laughs> I don't know the mechanism <laughs> for it. I presume it's mortgage rates are higher and corporate borrowing costs are higher. And Yeah, and there are lots of second round effects as well. But the primary thing is, if you can delay consumption and somehow invest your money at a high rate of interest with zero risk, which is effectively what treasuries allow you to do, then you'll delay your consumption. So if interest rates are low, then it forces you to bring forward your consumption and consume today. That's the idea. So that should increase inflation. But if interest rates are high, then you delay consumption because you can invest the money and have more money to spend later. So that's the idea. That's the yeah, basic yeah. idea so, behind so, it. So money gets more expensive. Yeah, that's what I said. <laughs> <laughs> And so with these rate hikes coming, how will that potentially affect the broad economy? Could it, is it going to slow down growth as well as targeting inflation? That's the risk. If we have weak growth and the Fed starts raising interest rates, almost always when the Fed does that, there's a recession not too far off, usually about 12 months later. Usually they end in some kind of crisis as well, but that may be just a coincidence. Okay, I'm getting scared again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think the thing to keep in mind is that interest rates are still very low. If you look at historic rates of interest, the Bank of England goes back to 1694, I think. This is the lowest it's ever been. And even if we increase interest rates, it's still very cheap, the cost of credit. So, you know, we're still a long way from expensive borrowing. So if you want to buy a house, if you want to expand your company and borrow in the corporate bond market, all of those are still very, very, very cheap. But you're right. The worry is that this is going to kind of stimmy the economic growth that we're seeing now after the pandemic. And many people are now revising their growth forecast down quite sharply. I mean, I see a lot of people using the word stagflation in the past year, which is, kind of just seems like one of those words that everyone's learned and is now saying to seem smart. And um, I'm not above that. So let's talk about stagflation. Okay. <laughs> so, I mean, this is really the worst of both worlds. So it's a combination of low growth and high inflation. This is what we saw in the UK, for example, in the 1970s. So cost of living going up, your wage isn't. Companies have very poor profit growth. That means that equities do badly. And at the same time, bonds do badly because of high inflation. Because remember, inflation is kryptonite for bonds. Bonds do really badly for inflation time. So there's nowhere to hide then if we do get stagflation. The hedges are very limited because obviously cash is not a safe haven because it's losing its value over time very rapidly if inflation's high. The only thing which really works in that kind of scenario would be something like gold. I'm not a huge gold fan, but in that kind of scenario, it's a pretty good hedge. 
And if we're talking about those different um, investment opportunities, let's assume we don't get stagflation and we get this kind of mostly transitory effect. What do you see the outlook for, let's say, stocks in the next year? If inflation stays high, it's pretty bad. I think it could derate quite significantly. If you are going to be exposed to the stock market, it's best to have the kind of company which can control prices best. So monopolies or potentially the producers of the commodities which are surging in price. So if energy is still strong, then you know energy companies would be the thing to look at. Is that your base case though? No, no. I think, I think it's going to be transitory. I think growth will be pretty good, but not great. So I don't think yields go much higher. And I think inflation will come down towards the end of 2022. I think that's the kind of central case for most people. So equity will do okay, but growth will be pretty lousy. So you know, yields, I don't think will go too high. And that's kind of where we were before the pandemic, right? Where growth was lousy, but equity was doing okay. Yeah, people were talking about secular stagnation. Secular just means for a long period of time, just before the pandemic hit. And yields were low as a result. And in fact, that's most likely where we'll go back to. I was hoping that the stimulus that we saw, the 11 trillion that you were talking about, would give us a bit of a you know, boost for growth that would last for some time. But in fact, what we're seeing looks like a surge. You always get a surge after a dip, but the surge is diminishing quite rapidly, which is unfortunate. And I presume that's just the re-emergence of those macroeconomic factors that that was causing the secular stagnation. So you had things like globalization and automation, demographic change, everyone you know getting older in the West, and no real productivity growth. Those factors are still going to be there, I would presume. That's right. Those problems haven't gone away, those structural problems. So I think we'll probably go back over the next year or so to that kind of secular stagnation problem once the pandemic's behind us. Um, and in terms of bonds, now we're going to see the Fed hiking interest rates. What kind of things do you need to consider when you're investing in bonds? Well, really, it's down to where you think yields will go. So if you think yields will go up a lot and inflation is going to be high for some time, then you'd want as short a duration as possible. So duration is how long on average you lock up your money. So if you buy a bond fund, the single thing to look at is what's the duration of the fund. Usually it's called effective duration. You'll find that's on Morningstar, for example, which is a great site for looking that kind of thing up. And if interest rates are going up, you want short duration. If interest rates are going down, you want long duration because it kind of amplifies the returns. But it's worthwhile saying that zero duration bonds are effectively just cash. So cash is the zero duration asset because it's insensitive to interest rates. So it seems kind of counterintuitive to say hold sort of cash-like things in a higher inflationary environment because we usually think, okay, inflation is eroding the power of my cash. I need to get out of cash. Yeah, that's right. But if you have, say, something like a 20-year bond, you're losing money due to inflation, but you're losing it multiplied by 20. You know, so that's the way yeah. to think of it. And the other thing you mentioned a little earlier was that um, if we do see you know, persistently high inflation, that gold is one of the better hedges for that. Yeah, I think you know, gold isn't a great hedge for inflation under normal circumstances. But if inflation is very high and growth is weak, then it's probably your best bet in terms of keeping value. But what we've also seen is that things like cryptocurrency, which people were saying was a very good inflation hedge and a very good equity hedge, simply hasn't worked. We've seen Bitcoin prices tank while inflation's high, and they've pretty much followed the stock market down because they're very clearly a, a risk asset. That's true. And we've also seen you know, the high inflation has come and gold has done nothing over the last year. So all those gold bugs 
must be scratching their heads a little bit. Yeah, so, so gold, that's right. I think it's very weakly linked to inflation. I think all commodities to some extent are linked to inflation. And I think I annoyed some gold bugs by pointing that out. In, my, in a video I did, I... <laughs> I love to annoy a gold bug. <laughs> but, but I mean, these are like the pre-crypto maximalists, right? I used to get lots of comments from the gold bugs after a video saying slightly out there things about... <laughs> You're so diplomatic. I am, aren't I? Uh, about the value of gold in a portfolio. But the, the point is that many commodities, anything useful has to track inflation over the long term. So what I showed was if you actually bought cheese and stored it somehow, it's actually been a very good inflation hedge, better than gold in the UK since 1940. The danger with storing cheese though, Roman, is that it's going to get nibbled away at. True. It would have to be some kind of liquid nitrogen setup. <laughs> but any commodity, really, if you look at things like chromium or other industrial metals, they've effectively kept in line with inflation. I mean, I guess they kind of have to because, you know, if they tracked way above inflation, they'd become unaffordable. And if they were way below inflation, they would become free over time. Yeah, exactly. So I think saying that gold is an inflation hedge is kind of a nonsense because anything useful is an inflation hedge because it has to track inflation over the long term. So I think gold potentially is useful because when people are scared, they typically buy gold. It has been a very good safe haven. So in this kind of low growth, high inflation scenario, it's probably a good hedge. If we're talking about hyperinflation, which is inflation of 50% per month. Per month? Per month. So that's... that's okay. Get your wheelbarrows. That's right. Wheelbarrows of cash. That's what we're talking about. If that happens, then all bets are off. And things like gold is a very good hedge. But that's not going to happen, is it? No. <laughs> good. And now we need to do your worst salesman of all time act. What's that? You need to do something promoting pension craft. Oh, yes. You look pained about how to do this. Oh, I hate having to do this. If you want to learn more about investing, a great way to do that is as part of our Patreon community. If you do that, you get access to our chat forum and lots of members-only videos, which are published every week. You also get a preview of all my YouTube videos before they're released, and you get regular members-only webinars. To learn more about that, just click on the link. Do I have links? We can add a link. To learn more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. You'll find a link in the podcast notes. People will find it. Ah, I hate it. So this week's dumb question of the week is, is Warren Buffett's outrageous success down to skill or luck? What do you think, Robin? I think some investors just have very good stock picking skills. Now, there was actually a paper which you found, Michael, which was very useful, which talks about the growth in Warren Buffett's portfolio and where the alpha comes from. And what it shows is that leverage was actually a big part of the returns because something very special about his fund is that he has something called float because, of course, he's got a big insurance company. That's effectively what Berkshire Hathaway is. What you can see is that that leverage has definitely played a role in boosting his returns, which were on average, I think, about 22% per year. But they have tailed off over the last decade or so because now he's so big, you know, the fund is so big, that he just can't buy any kind of growth companies, which are fairly small, mid-caps even. Because if it did, to have a significant allocation, it would own the entire company. So I think over his sort of investing career, he's achieved a gain that's roughly double the S&P 500 when you include dividends, which, you know, it seems kind of 
strange that that wouldn't be down to some kind of skill. But leverage plays a large part. So if you just bought an S&P tracker over that period of time and had 1.6 times leverage, which is effectively what the float gives him, then you know you could have a higher return than the S&P by definition. But what's interesting is he doesn't have those massive drawdowns. So it's not just leverage. He obviously does have some really great stock picking skill. But I don't think there is a magic recipe for finding stocks which outperform the market. You know, I don't really buy into the idea of consistent outperformance due to skill, which is worth a high fee. I think if you don't have a high fee, there's a possibility that you could have funds which outperform over a long period of time. But the size of the outperformance probably would be gobbled up by a high fee. I think the other thing I read was that his uh, sector allocation effectively has helped him. So he's tended to go for you know value investments, which is what he's famous for, which are the kind of low beta stocks. And, and you know by that, we mean the less volatile stocks, which have actually outperformed the broad index. That's right. But he did pick some great ones like Apple fairly early on. And he did take some... F- incredible bets like options on Goldman Sachs, for example, during the height of the financial crisis. He sold options on Goldman Sachs because he didn't believe the price would go down. He sold put options and that was incredibly good timing. I think that's a great point about um, his reaction to the financial crisis where, you know, I think he really comes into his own in those situations. So I, I think he got 5 billion in preferred stock of Goldman Sachs and that's the other trick to it for me is he has such um, a reputation, right? As this kind of cuddly grandfather of capitalism, right? So he's kind of trusted. And when everything went wrong and the banks were trying to prove that they weren't all going to go under, they kind of wanted Warren Buffett's investment. So they were willing to offer him these like really good deals on stock just to get that kind of Buffett seal of approval on their balance sheet. And he did incredibly well. I think General Electric did a, did a similar thing where they pulled in money from Buffett. And I, that brand really pays off for him. The other thing is that he's just been around for a very long time and done fairly well for a long period of time. So there's a really nice statistic from The Psychology of Money, the book by Morgan Housel, which is great, where he shows if Buffett had started off with the average savings at age 30, so instead of having 9.3 million at age 30, if he started off with $25,000, which is the average savings of someone that age, currently his wealth, instead of being 85 billion, would only be about 12 million. Pathetic. Pathetic. (laughs) (laughs) But nobody would be talking about Warren Buffett if he hadn't started off with that much money. Even if he had a 22% return, he'd only have 1% of the wealth today. So I think the key thing is to have a lot of money when you're young and just stay in the game as long as you can. There you go, kids. That's performance advice. Have a lot of money while you're young. (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, you know, I do a lot of power hours and I speak to people who are young, but they're pretty wealthy, often because they've created a company or they've maybe inherited the wealth. So it certainly does happen to some lucky people. But even if it doesn't, you know, I think the message is the same. Live as long as you can, stay in the game for as long as you can and get reasonable returns. Don't bet the farm because... Leverage can really hurt you. So, but if I'm Warren Buffett listening to this, I'm thinking, you cheeky little... You're just saying the only reason I'm so successful is because I didn't die. <laughs> I mean, he's probably not listening to this, is he, really? He probably is. You think he's sat in his office in Omaha, just like, oh, let's see what the boys in London are up to. Of course he is. Drinking his Diet Coke. 
<laughs> yeah, that's something we have in common, actually. Code Zero more for me, I guess. And your skill at uh, stock picking. <laughs> oh, yes, obviously. Yeah. I mean, I think um, the other thing, like you say, he's been in the game for an extremely long time. But that's not easy to sustain that success. I think you must be prone at some point to just doing something really stupid and like losing all your gains. Um, I think Charlie Munger, Warren's long-term business partner, had a quote, which I think is spot on. He says, it's remarkable how much long-term advantage people like us have gotten by trying to be consistently not stupid instead of trying to be very intelligent. And I think that's the thing, isn't it? You just outperform a little bit or just track the market and just do it for a long time without selling in the crises or taking on too much leverage or going all in on risky stocks or crypto because who knows how that's going to turn out. And just doing the basics right for a long time. And be consistent. You know, he's been a value investor for so long, even though that style of investing kind of peaked in 2006. It may be coming back, but who knows? But he just stuck with it. So for example, during the dot-com boom, I remember people were slamming him for underperforming, but he paid no attention. He said, look, these companies are not generating a profit. I'm not going to invest in them. That's just not his style. Whereas many other fund managers caved in, bought into the dot-com boom, and obviously suffered during the bust. So, you know, I think, I, think, I think his idea of being fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful is, is one that works as well. You know, you have to be tactical during these crises, but the other part is kind of staying the game. I mean, he probably is going to go down as the greatest investor of all time. Would that be fair? Certainly the most well-known. I suspect many people are very good, but keep it secret because they don't want other people to copy what they're doing. Hedge funds, for example, do this. But I think outperforming is very, very, very difficult because markets are efficient. If there is some kind of angle, eventually other people will discover it and the alpha decays, as they say. So in summary, what we're saying is he has some skill, but the main factors are consistency and sticking at it for a long time. And leverage. And leverage. Which you don't have to pay back. <laughs> Let's all start insurance companies. <laughs> yeah, with billions of dollars in float. Thank you so much for listening to our first episode of Many Happy Returns. And if you've enjoyed the show, it would really help us if you leave us a rating or a review. Two people have already left us a four-star rating. It's like, what are they rating us on? Four-star? I was like, four-star? For what? This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to sell, buy or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.